Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Building and Implementing an FRAR Program for the Arc Flash Hazard, presented by Bulwark. This is Alan Ferguson, Associate Editor at Safety and Health Magazine. I will moderate today's presentation. First, we'd like to thank you for joining us, and on behalf of the National Safety Council, whose employees are currently working away from the office, we hope that you, your loved ones, and all the people in your lives are remaining safe and healthy wherever they are. We'll start this presentation in a couple minutes, but first, there are some housekeeping items. As a disclaimer, the views of today's speaker and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council of the Magazine endorses those items. After today's presentation, we'll conduct a question and answer session with our speaker. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower in the left-hand side of the screen, click the button for submit question. Please feel free to ask your question any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible. We might not get to every question. The good news is that any unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. After this presentation, you'll also be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey, and I'll tell you more about that a little later. This webcast will be archived so you can access it after today's live event to view this webcast and all of our past webcasts. Please go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's introduce our speaker. With us today is Derek Sang, Technical Training Manager at Bulwark. Derek has worked in the flame-resistant clothing industry in a variety of roles for more than a quarter of a century. He's also developed and conducted more than 250 educational seminars around the country and given keynote speeches on the hazards of arc flash and flash fire along with general safety in front of multiple associations, organizations, and companies. Along with his recognition as a subject matter expert, Derek is a qualified safety sales professional, a certified environmental health and safety professional, and a certified virtual presenter. Again, we'd like to thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Derek, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Alan, thank you again for the kind introduction, and good morning, good afternoon, live or archived, however you're consuming this today. Thank you very much for taking time out of your valuable day to join us to learn a little bit more about building and implementing a flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program for, specifically today, the arc flash hazard. So let's get started. First and foremost, let's get the legal stuff out of the way. This presentation is for informational purposes only. Customers of Bulwark Protection are solely responsible for conducting their own hazard risk assessment to identify safety hazards in their work environment. Customers of Bulwark Protection are solely responsible for selecting appropriate garments and protective gear for their employees and ensuring wearers use the garments and protective gear properly and in conjunction with the appropriate gloves and footwear. Because working conditions and other factors may vary, bulwark protection does not make any representation that these garments protective gear will protect wearers from injury. So on to why we're here today. When we're out in the field and we're talking to the folks that wear our garments as life-saving pieces of equipment, we get a lot of questions around what are some of the best practices, uh, how can we build this better, how can we get people to buy in, how do we know we're getting the right stuff, and you know what's better, a task-based approach, a daily wear approach? So with all that, in the short time that we have together, uh, briefly, what is flame-resistant and arc-rated clothing? Where we are today with regulations and standards, how layering can enhance your current flame-resistant arc-rated uh, program, and what are some of the essentials for proper care and maintenance. And then, time permitting, we'll throw in a bonus there for high-vis and rain gear where we get extra questions around that. So a few definitions. There are no fire retardant garments. Fire retardants are the chemicals that allow finished garments to have flame resistant properties. By flame resistant, all it does is self extinguish. It puts itself out. There are no other additional magical properties to a seven ounce shirt and 12 ounce pant other than they put themselves out after that ignition source has been removed. Uh, old terms like inherent and treated or marketing terms, 
don't get tied into those so much. What's important today is that fiber-fabric combination ultimately does the job of flame resistance, which self-extinguish and will not support combustion. FR engineering is really where we are today, and what do we mean by that? Uh, Flame-resistant properties can be applied at really three different levels. Uh, you can change the molecular structure of a fiber, a.k.a. take nylon, change its molecular structure, and now you have Nomex. Take a modified acrylic, a.k.a. motacrylic fiber, add fire-retardant chemistry when it's still a soup, extrude that fiber, now you have an FR motacrylic, Take a combustible or something that will burn, such as a cellulosic, a.k.a. cotton, put it through a process to impart fire-retardant chemistry, and now you have it at the fabric level. What we have today is a combination, typically, of all those three forms of engineering. What's important is not how it's done, but you have confidence at the end of the day that it is done because when we look at a shirt and pant and we say now that's flame resistant and arc rated, how do you know that? You have to trust that it's there. So we want to make sure that we have and we're using market proven uh, performers, market proven supply chain partners, et cetera. I've used the term FR, I've used the term AR, I've said flame resistant, arc rated, what does all that mean? Arc rating is additional testing to already flame resistant fabrics to ensure that it will hold up against that particular hazard. All arc rated garments by definition, first and foremost, are flame resistant. Not all flame resistant garments are necessarily arc rated. So why is flame-resistant arc-rated garments needed? Because we work in environments where we have accidental thermal exposures that can cause garments that don't have flame-resistant properties to ignite and continue to burn, and that's ultimately what leads to fatality. Uh, arc flashes and flash fires in and of themselves are not strong enough, nor do they last long enough to cause enough damage to ultimately kill us. So when we look at mitigating injury and increasing survivability, we look to eliminate clothing ignition because the only way we can get to catastrophic body burn over 50% and ultimately a high rate of fatality from that is having that short duration thermal event extended beyond the fractions of a second in an arc flash to the few seconds of a flash fire and we now have a 30-second clothing fire causing 40, 50, 60% body burn, that's ultimately how these short-duration thermal events can lead to fatality, and that's why flame-resistant arc-rated clothing is a life-saving piece of equipment. So it's made from fabrics, as I said earlier, that by definition put themselves out because these are dynamic events. There's tons of other things that are happening and if I have to try and put myself out because my garments are caught fire, it's highly unlikely that that may happen because I've got so much going on and that event is now being extended and I'm being hurt far longer than that short duration thermal event has existed in and of itself. So your survivability, the extent of how much you are hurt, ultimately your recovery time and the quality of life going forward is all dependent on your flame-resistant arc-rated garments and that they protect you and that we mitigate the amount of injury that you may potentially have in that event. One thing we always get asked is, is Derek, I go, my electricians are really, really smart. They know what they're doing. I'm a safety guy. I, I understand it, but I'm not an electrician. I came from a different avenue. They're telling me they only need to put it on when they're doing energized work. And yes, technically, you can be compliant as long as you're wearing it when you're doing a diagnostic energized task, such as voltage testing, troubleshooting, verifying. But what are the differences or what is the mindset going from a task-based approach to a uh, all-day, everyday approach? 
So first and foremost, let's break it down what they are. Uh, primary protection is used when I'm knowingly going into a thermal event. The easiest analogy to think of is think of firefighters. Big red truck, flashing red lights, uh, roll up to a structural fire. I've already donned my specialized boots, the lower half of my bunker gear, the upper half of my bunker gear. Uh, I've put on my special gloves and my really cool hard hat. And before I grab that Pulaski and voluntarily walk into a burning building, I also need one other key piece of equipment, and that's a breathing apparatus. Because regardless of how good all that other PPE is, I need to be able to breathe inside that four to 800 degree fire, which is my work environment. So when we knock that fire down, we get off the fire grounds, we head back to the station house, do we need to be wearing all that PPE? Well, the answer is no. Why? Because we only wear it when we're knowingly going into a thermal event like a structural fire, because we have foreknowledge. In our world, these are accidental events. We don't build electrical equipment to blow up. So in order to counter that, we always want to have a baseline of protection. And that's what all day, every day, arc-rated clothing does, is it gives us protection for the unknown. Unlike our firefighter, unlike doing a switching gear operation, unlike when we are racking a breaker, unlike when we're doing something where we're knowingly doing it, when we can climb into our uh, Cat 440 Cal flash suit, or if we're in Canada now, our Cat 565 Cal flash suit, and we do that specific task, when we're voltage testing, troubleshooting, and verifying, we can have accidental arc flashes. Hence, we need to be wearing a baseline of protection, and that's what you your all-day, everyday arc-rated clothing does. Think about it this way. If I was an imaginary owner of my own electrical contracting company, and I had a construction side and a service side, and on my service side, I had 10 electricians. And of those 10 electricians, they go out and service my customers, and they do energized tasks every day, such as voltage testing, troubleshooting, and verifying. Per NFPA 70E, those are energized tasks in which I have to wear arc-rated clothing and additional PPE. If my 10 guys do 10 of those tasks a day, that's 100 tasks a day, 360 days plus a year, that's 35,000 plus times a year that they are climbing in and out of their task-based solution, a.k.a. I give them a hot kit, they wear regular old jeans and a T-shirt, and then they climb into their hot kit, which can, consists of a 12-cal coverall, hard hat, face shield, rubbers, leathers, balaclavas, hearing protection, eye protection, uh, my insulated tools, etc. And I'm doing that 35,000 times a year when no one's necessarily watching me. Is there a chance for that to ever fail? Is there a chance that I may not do that to voltage test a 200 amp disconnect? Those are weaknesses in a task-based program. If I'm wearing cat two or eight calories or better shirt pant cover uh, all the time, I'm going to mitigate or lower my exposure from 35,000 down to virtually nil. In the hierarchy of controls, understand that PPE is the last line of defense. We get it, I understand it. But if you're looking at elimination, substitution, engineering controls and administration controls, that is all great, fine and dandy. But if there is an arc flash, if there is a short duration thermal exposure, happening right now, your hierarchy is over. You only have your last line of defense. And just as in our safety belt, when we are surrounded by all this excellent engineering, when you look at the automobile industry in the last five years and all the engineering they have, anti-lock, anti-skid, side view mirrors that will identify if someone's in your blind spot, rear view mirrors that can identify if you're dozing off, cars that are able to stop themselves and park themselves. With all that engineering, why do we still rely on 75-year-old technology? 
because it's a proven life-saving piece of equipment. And no matter how bad it is on this side of the windshield, it's still better than 25 feet down that asphalt. Ask any highway patrol officer the survivability of ejection accidents. It's virtually nil. And just like your safety belt, your last line of defense in that arc flash are the clothes on your back. What you wore up to that 480 panel, that 200 amp disconnect, whatever you wore in that bucket that day in the utility side, up against that pad mount transformer, you don't have time to stop and go get it. Just like in your automobile, you're not just going to click your safety belt as you're getting into the accident. You're not going to be able to don your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing right before the arc flash. So what is some of the history and where do we stand with regulations and standards today? Well, on our utility side of the business, we have a history with 1910, 269, 1926, et cetera. We understand that working in and around energized lines, there are chances for arc flash exposures. And early on, we just said, hey, don't wear anything that will contribute to the injury. Unfortunately, if it ignites, it's going to contribute to the injury. So then we said, well, make sure you don't wear meltables. And then finally, uh, recently as, as 2014, we said, hey, you've got to have your outer more layer has to be tested to, to be equal to or greater than the potential incident energy you're up against, so it will not break open, expose what's underneath, etc., aka ignite and continue to burn. Because clothing ignition, as we said earlier, is what ultimately leads to the injuries and potential fatalities from arc flash. So by eliminating that, the Office of Management Budget, when they did their study, said about 20 lives a year and about 118 serious injuries could be uh, foregone by just implementing this type of PPE. In our 70E world, uh, we have and we know the large majority of that book, which has been updated from 2018 to 2021 now, is in and around shock. Do not get shocked. The other piece is obviously arc flash and arc blast. We want to do that arc flash risk assessment. In fact, it's necessary in order to ultimately protect electrical workers. They have to know what they're up against, so the assessment is huge, and that's really the primary driver of this. Don't get shocked and know how much incident energy you're up against. It was originally primarily written to get electricians out of fuel. What do I mean by that? Cotton is fuel. Cotton is latent fuel waiting for enough energy to ignite it and have it continue to burn. And it's a lot of fuel. Electricians for decades had cotton as a safety upgrade because at least it didn't melt. The failure was to tell you, well, that was true up until it ignited, then it's just a lot of fuel. So we wanted to get electricians out of cotton. We also wanted to be able to tell electricians, and this is why it's so important to get the arc flash hazard assessment done, is how big a bomb they're standing in front of. You can look at two identical gray boxes sitting on the back of your facility's wall, and as an electrician, unless there is labeling there to tell me how big a bomb I'm up against so I can dress accordingly, there's no way by looking at it that you can tell that one is a Cat 1 panel and the other one is a Cat 4 panel, or one is 3 calories of incident energy and the other one is 38 calories of incident energy. So how are you going to dress? One's a firecracker, the other one's a stick of dynamite. OSHA says you shall protect your people. It does not tell you a lot on the how. The how is with our ASTM standards, our ANSI standards, and our NFPA standards. So you have an arc flash hazard. Now what? You now, so you know or you have an estimate of your incident energies, and we understand where that is today. You have the default to CAT2 or 8 calories of, of more uh, of protection because for the most part, and I'm going to use a number and it can be give or take, but 80% of all energized tasks in the electrical community today, give or take, 
are going to be less than eight calories of incident energy. So I have that baseline. So for equipment that's greater than eight cal, what can you do? Well, you can do a couple things. You can get further away and recalculate it, get at the end of a hot stick to do that, get remote switching. There's other uh, engineering that you can incorporate and implement to get further away or get you out of the way. If you have to be there, what can you do that's, in, that's simple and easy? You can layer up. More layers can be more insulative, hence more protective. Also, they help us avoid certain things that can happen because understand we're dealing with calculations. When I tell you as an electrician that is a five-calorie panel, that's typically based on what? A default distance. The default distance is typically what? 18 inches. It's also dependent on four cycles closing time. That's based on the equipment that I'm being given and been told that when in perfect working condition, that will close in four cycles. Okay. If all those, if any of those variables change, your incident energies can be greater. So, for example, we have an arc flash here on this piece of equipment. What do we notice? Well, here is the PPE. You can see where the energy came from. You can see his rubber gloves for insulation against shock. You can see his leather uh, overprotector there for his gloves. You can also see the safety glasses. This is what this electrician was wearing underneath. That is a 100% cotton t-shirt, which by all the standards is appropriate and he's allowed to implement and is doing nothing wrong. What you're seeing there is break open that has now allowed energy to get through, which has caused charring, which is on the cusp of ignition. You are potentially having a clothing fire underneath your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing. Why is that? It stayed open a little longer, more incident energy. The electrician was closer than 18 in inches, more incident energy. You can overwhelm that single layer garment and start to expose what's underneath, and this is what is happening there. So what does the layering allow us to do? Well, at the very basics, okay, it takes away having to make decisions about what you wear underneath. It takes away the training on what you wear underneath because you're only allowed natural fibers. Those natural fibers are cotton, silk, and wool in the winter months. Other than that, you have to avoid any kind of meltables. You have to avoid large logos. You have to avoid a lot of different things where if you implement a flame-resistant base layer, you take all that away. Also, two lightweight layers can be much more protective than a single heavier weight outer layer. For example, you can get as low as six ounces on a base layer, six ounces on an outer layer, and they're combined tested ATPV or arc rating is 24. I, I can't get anywhere close to that in a five to seven ounce outer layer. So as I look at this, it also takes away two main problems. One, it eliminates if break open happens, igniting what's underneath or melting what's underneath. And that's what you see in the picture at the top. You see performance undergarments that are utilized in the gym that are often worn by our electrical folks because why? It's hot, I'm sweating, I'm gonna wear something that I know will keep me cool and will wick moisture. It also liquefies in an arc flash because of the extreme heat that three and a half ounce polypropylene will melt and then I'm going to drive it into your skin at 2,200 square foot pounds of concussive force from that arc. And those are the scars that are going to be retained for a lifetime as they deburr plastic out of you at the burn unit. Because outer layers can fail. And that's what you see in the lower layer. That is not a failure of that arc rated shirt. That arc rated shirt was in an incident that was far greater than it was able to stay intact to. It's called break open. All fabrics have an ATPV, how much will they insulate to? And they also have an E sub BT, which is an energy break open threshold. All garments will eventually fail. 
And what happens is, is it fails and exposes what's underneath. Is what underneath ignitable or meltable, or is what underneath going to be an additional layer of protection? So layering do's and don'ts. Uh, regardless of the hazard, natural fibers are permissible or nothing at all. Uh, layering of non-meltable uh, flammable garments are fine as long as that outer layer does not uh, break open. It has to be sufficient to withstand that. Only arc-rated uh, FR layers within the layered system are used to determine the system rating. So if I wanted to have a 12-cal system, I have to have the layers that are going to allow me to that, and they have to both be arc rated, otherwise I don't have a layered system. I can't use non-FR cotton to help me get there. I can't use anything other than the systems as they are, the layers are as they are to be worn. So that has to be tested. And any garment worn as an outer layer, including rainwear, vests, and everything, must at least have an arc rating. And we'll talk about that a little bit more specifically, but they don't have to be equal to or greater than the incident energy, especially when we're talking about vests, because vests aren't garments. Vest is an outer layer, but it has no arms, it has an open neck, and it's not anywhere near secure at the bottom. What's going to, to be equal to or greater than the incident energy is that arc-rated shirt that you're wearing underneath. And you can even carry that over into rainwear. If I have a uh, five calorie hazard, I'm wearing four calorie rainwear. As long as my eight calorie shirt is on underneath, they're both arc rated, you'd be good to go. Our standards know that we are going to be in incident energies ultimately higher than a single layer shirt can provide. They all talk to uh, providing additional protection and that layering can add to that and what a typical layering system is. So 1506, which underlines NFPA 70E, which is highly focused on our utility side, all recognize that layering is a reasonable option to protect folks against higher incident energies. We dedicated a whole annex to it in NFPA 70E and understanding that layering can provide additional benefits. So Based on that, which base layer is correct for you? Well, both these base layers could be correct for you. Uh, if you just want the additional protection, and if you want the peace of mind that my people aren't wearing meltables, they aren't wearing T-shirts with big logos, they aren't potentially, if it did break open, they're not going to have it ignitable underneath, you could easily have a short sleeve uh, utilized for your team. If you want to have the additional uh, ATPV available or the additional arc rating available to you because you want to work on an energized system utilizing layering, then you want to incorporate a long sleeve. Why? You are single layer from mid-bicep all the way down to the wrist. That eliminates you being able to use that layered calculation in your system because you're single layered there and that would leave you Whatever the lowest ATPV is in your system, wherever it is single layered, would be where the lowest ATPV is. So, for example, if those denim were 12 calories, that T-shirt was 6 calories, your button-down shirt over top of that was 8 calories, and when you tested them together, you had 24 on top, 12 on the bottom, you could do 12-cal work. If, you're sing if you have a Short sleeve underneath, you can only do 8-cal work because that single layer is now the, the ATPV of your button-down outer layer. Hence, you lose the system's approach when looking at it. So it's important to remember the lowest ATPV in your system is what you can work on or what would be the reasonable estimate of the incident energy that you would be up against, whether that is your outer layer with a short sleeve base layer underneath or no base layer underneath or a cotton base layer underneath, then it typically would be the shirt weight is going to be the lowest arc rating in your system. The regulations and standards require we train and document on what we're doing on our PPE. That's seriously important. 
Obviously, where do we turn to that? Easy, 1910-132. Uh, when PPE is necessary, what PPE is necessarily. Uh, we walk through a lot of folks on how to properly don and doff, adjust, and wear their PPE properly. This is as much, if not more important, knowing what it can do is knowing what it can't do. You are not Superman in a single layer arc rated shirt and pant. You're not running into burning buildings and saving babies. This is for short duration thermal exposures. Uh, and we're talking about arc flash today and the other component to that would be flash fires. The proper care and maintenance and useful life and ultimately disposable disposing of your PPE is important. And that falls, and all this that I'm talking about falls on the employer. Even if you look to have the care and maintenance piece uh, third-partied out to say an industrial launderer, that does not indemnify you against proper care and maintenance. AKA, if your employee walks by and he's got a big tear in the back of the shirt that he could not see, or the shirt is looking threadborn and worn, we can't let them wear that into the field. And it's just as simple as thinking about if I had a crack in my hard hat, if I had a lens missing in my safety glasses, if I only had one earbud for my hearing protection, we wouldn't implement those either. We also need to take that mindset now to our work shirts and work pants. So some FR do's and some FR don'ts that you want to incorporate in your training. This is proper interfacing, and that's the term they use in ASTM 1506, is shirts and pants will be interfaced properly. This is how a shirt and pant is to be interfaced. Sleeves rolled down and buttoned, placard buttoned up to the neck, shirt tucked in. NFPA 2112 for our flash fire folks, but more importantly 7E tell you that you have to tuck in, roll down and button up your PPE. This is the big don't. Unfortunately, I see more of this in the field than I do the previous slide. When I go and do my site visit, I will see sleeves rolled up, I will see typically untucked 90% of the time. And what and why is that a concern? Arc flashes do not always hit electricians square on the chest. Arc flashes will shoot out of that piece of equipment, hit the ground, mushroom up, and all that superheated air, and that will come up underneath blousing that shirt. And guess what? If you're wearing lightweight, 100% fuel, a.k.a. cotton T-shirt, I'm going to have a cotton fire underneath my arc-rated shirt. In fact, it happens, and it happens enough that it has its own term. The term that is utilized is the chimney effect. You are burning from the inside out. So always tuck in your flame-resistant arc-raised shirts. Now, I say that, and when we're out in the field and we're talking to folks and they go, hey, bulwark guy, we're wearing flame-resistant arc-rated base layers. Do I still need to tuck my outermost layer in? In that particular case, you've eliminated the fuel. Now, can superheated air still get up underneath if both layers are, are untucked? If you have the t-shirt tucked in and the bottoms are, and the top layer is untucked, you have definitely mitigated the chances of you being burned and hurt, and you've eliminated the chances of uh, clothing ignition. So yes, you could deploy them that way if you chose to do so. So there are caveats to implementing it correctly in the field. If you have taken all the fuel out of the equation, you definitely can alter how you're going to wear it. But the standards tell you that your outermost layer uh, for certain pants to be interfaced properly have to be tucked in. Uh, we do get questions, well, how am I going to tuck in my jacket? It's now the outermost layer. We're not talking about outerwear because the assumption is that you're wearing a flame-resistant arc-rated shirt underneath, and that is going to be tucked in, so you don't need to tuck out outerwear. That includes sweatshirts, that includes hoodies, that includes anything that would be worn over top of, traditionally, your work shirt as seen in this picture here. Other things that could undermine a very, very well-run 
very strong flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program. What are you putting on your head? And that includes in winter months, we're talking about beanies, skull caps, balaclavas. Uh, in, in the hot months, you're talking about neck wraps. You're talking about bandanas. Most of those, unless they have flame-resistant uh, properties, are a no-go. Uh, this ball cap here, highly doubt. In fact, I know because we took the picture. This is not a flame-resistant ball cap. That is all ignitable and or meltable, and it's sitting on my head. Everything else can work ideally and perfectly as you would like, and you're going to receive unnecessary injuries because you forgot to uh, provide flame-resistant properties in your headgear. This is a very expensive uh, brown duck flame-resistant arc-rated work coat. What about what's sitting on the back of it now? That hoodie that is underneath there is that part of your flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program. If not, you potentially have dumped a ton of fuel on the back of your neck. And you have taken and nullified or jeopardized a very good flame-resistant arc-rated clothing program because you've allowed your folks to bring what they wear at home onto the job site. Now, if that's a flame-resistant arc-rated uh, hoodie, you're probably okay. The scare is, if it's not, we're not mannequins. Nine times out of ten, any videos you've ever seen of arc flashes are going to utilize mannequins. Mannequins are what highly trained stand perfectly still. What we do, though, is we're going to flinch. Our startle flinch res response on an arc flash is to get our eyes and everything away from that. We turn our head. As we pivot in this picture here, I'd be exposing a ton of fuel to potential ignition source. And if that ignites, you're going to have a clothing ignition right up in and around your head and face. Not ideal. So flame-resistant arc-rated garments and how to use them and how to train them, wear them correctly. Uh, make sure your base layers under your uh, what you're wearing underneath is coached upon. If not, remove the potential ignition by going to flame-resistant arc-rated base layers. Uh, wearing it correctly is equally important as getting the right stuff. You can deploy the best system on the planet, and if you don't implement it correctly, it does not matter. Go back to the seatbelt analogy. Uh, I grew up when my Dad first got his first car with the first seat belt that made that annoying sound. How he solved it is he simply took the safety belt and clicked it behind him, stopping the sound because he didn't need to wear these things. I've never used one since I started driving. I don't need to start wearing it now. So, again, great life-saving piece of equipment deployed entirely wrong, head-on collision. It's not going to do him any good. FRAR base layers take away the potential for ignition of non-FR undergarments due to the outer layer potentially breaking open. And all outer layers will and can and do break open if there's enough energy there. Uh, and it can be easier to monitor than a non-FR base layer. And the reason we say that is think about it. Even though I see that little white V at the neckline of all my electricians, I'm assuming that that white V indicates 100% cotton, best case scenario. I have no idea of two things. One, I have really no idea of that white's actual fiber makeup. Can I have a 50-50 cotton white t-shirt? Can I have a 65-35? Can I have an 80-20? I am introducing meltables into a high heat environment. The other thing you don't see is that big old logo across the chest because it's buttoned up in front of it. Those inks will superheat up in that duration and we can have transfer of injury because of the logos that are unseen underneath. Your base layers take that all away. You eliminate the need for the underwear police because all the top manufacturers of all the base layers today are going to have an identifier right there at the neckline so I can just at a scan Make sure my people are wearing the right PPE underneath their flame-resistant arc-rated garments. 
care and maintenance is always a, a huge deal because it is part of the employer's responsibility that we have trained our people on how to properly care and maintain their PPE and how to take care of it. And the good thing is, is it's relatively easy to do. Uh, where we are today with uh, flame-resistant arc-rated garments, unless you do something really fundamentally wrong, uh, it's really hard to mess them up. Follow the manufacturer's guidelines on every single label on all quality FR, and they're all going to say the same thing. Don't use bleach. Don't use peroxide. Don't use fabric softener. Now, there are other things that you can do as kind of a best practice, but if you eliminate chlorine, which let's say I have navy pants or I have jeans or in a khaki shirt or a light blue shirt, I shouldn't be using chlorine in my wash process there. Uh, avoid peroxide. That's the sneaky one because that's all your products that have OxyClean in them and help you get everything sparkly. We don't want to do that. Just plain liquid detergent. Avoid fabric softener both in liquid and in the dryer. Uh, that coating that goes on there is an accelerant, and we don't want to do that. Now, that's an accumulation process. Uh, if you did it once, twice accidentally, just rewash them. It'll come out. What we're talking about is if you did that for 40, 50, 60 washes, you're going to impair the FR properties from doing the best job that it can do. So use liquid detergent. Avoid the hottest temperatures as you would with your regular clothing to minimize uh, shrinking. For tough stains, you can soak the garments in, in liquid detergent. You can soak the garments in shout. You can do all those things uh, just as you wash them. will help come out. You are allowed to uh, dry clean. Uh, good quality FR today should not be an issue. And uh, rewash garments if there's a lingering odor. Uh, for folks who home launder, a lot of companies make magnets. That's just an example of hours that goes on your washer dryer to remind you of these things. We get questions about soiled garments. Staining in and of themselves does not tell you that it does not have anything to do with imparting of the FR properties. If it's stained and clean, it's still going to perform perfectly fine. If it stains and it still smells like accelerant, guess what it is? It's an accelerant. That means when it comes back from the wash process, whether that wash process is in your home or that wash process is in an industrial launderer, if it smells like fuel, ladies and gentlemen, it is still fuel. Wash it until that odor is gone. If you can't get rid of that odor, get rid of the garment. That fuel will be consumed in a thermal event. Uh, so during the workday now, if I get stain, grease, secondary accelerants like my uh, picture here on the top, get me out of the arc flash boundary. Get me out of the bucket, on the ground, give me that traffic sign, get me away, have me doing something else to where I'm not in uh, minimal approach distance, I'm not within 10 feet, there's nothing that's going to let me take that fuel into an ignition source. In a 70E environment, get me changed out of that. Uh, the lower picture, hey, we're going to pick up oils, greases, grimes throughout the workday. That's probably manageable. All right? We have to be our brothers and sisters keepers, so let's make sure that we are conscious of doing that. Repairing or replacing. From a safety standpoint, replace. Don't repair. Okay, you, the, the integrity of the garment has been broken. Yes, unfortunately, nothing stops you from repairing, and there's also very few guidelines on what you can repair. I don't want you looking like uh, a stitched-up Frankenstein. I also want you to understand there's some things you can't repair. For example, the red shirt on the elbows here, that's threadborne. That's unrepairable. Replace that. The, uh, the garment here on the right, that's a pretty long tear probably want to replace that. That short tear on the sleeve, ugh, arguably it's on the seam line. Could you make a reasonable repair? Yeah, you can. Now, what do you need to do that? And what rule of thumb should you follow? Uh, like materials, so keep an old shirt and an old pant and use those for any kind of patching. 
Then you're going to hop on the Google box. You're going to put in aramid thread or flame-resistant thread. It'll take you to a site, and you're going to buy the right color, Nomex or aramid thread, flame-resistant thread, that you need in order to stitch these up. Uh, then, how many? Well, there is what we call the rule of thumb. If you make that OK sign, that's going to tell you you get one of each. You get one hole the size of a nickel, and you get one tear three inches in length. And that is our guideline to our wearers, and you get one of each on a garment. After that, you need to uh, remove that garment from service. So inspect garments daily, uh, check for holes, rips, and tears, check for areas of heavy wear such as elbows, knees, and check the integrity of your seams just as you would with your fall harness, just as you would with your uh, electrical uh, rubber gloves. Check them on a daily, regular basis and replace and upgrade as needed. So simplify. Flame-resistant arc-rated clothing should be appropriate to the hazard. Uh, always your outermost layer, all-natural non-melting undergarments, and then better yet, flame-resistant arc-rated undergarments. Clean, no flammable contaminants. Mitigate those throughout the workday. Get out of harm's way if you get too much and change out of them if it's possible. Repair correctly and remove from service when needed. So bonus. So in the last few minutes here before we get into Q&A, we get a lot of questions in around rain gear and our vests, and we're getting so much better. Uh, five, ten years ago, it was literally probably a flip of the coin whether I actually had arc-rated vests and arc-rated rain gear on my electrical workers. Uh, how did we know that? There's a lot of flame-resistant vests and a lot of flame-resistant rain gear. That tells me nothing. Just because it says FR does not mean that it's arc rated and it's been tested to your hazard. There is lots of rain gear and lots of vests out there that'll dictate that they are flame resistant by meeting ASTM 6413. That is not a performance test. It is the vertical flame test. It allows for uh, self-extinguishing, mitigating char length and tearing. Well, if I'm wearing plastic or some other form, I'm going to run away from that flame. I'm going to retreat from it. You're going to have no ignition in, you know, of which to self-extinguish from, and you're going to have little or no char length, so AKA IMFR. That is nonsense for what our hazard is and what we're up against. Uh, 701 is an NFPA standard for drapery. It's been utilized in the vest market to claim FR properties for years, and thankfully, we're starting to see that uh, decrease. For our world, if it is a arc-rated rain gear, we want to have ASTM 1891 in the label. That is telling us that it is actually tested to your hazard. For our flash fire folks, 2733, if you are dual hazard, get both of them in your rain gear. It is readily available. Things to be cautious of. Look at those labels. Uh, you'll see this in vest and rain gear. Remember that 6413 standard? It'll tell you that these garments self-extinguish. That is nonsense. That is not a characteristic that we measure per se as a standalone in what we do. Uh, it will tell you in an ANSI 107 vest that you cannot claim 6413 as a characteristic to claim flame-resistant properties. So in this one here, they tell you this garment is not flame resistant as defined by ANSI 107-2015. But then it tells you in here, it's a type R class two FR ASTM 6413. So they're contradicting themselves in the very same label. You'll also notice if you read this closely, self-extinguishing properties diminish with washing. These are literally flame-resistant vests and flame-resistant rain gear you cannot get wet. Be cautious of where you're buying stuff. Be cautious of what you're buying. 
a simple rule if your rain gear costs you a hundred bucks or around 125 bucks you got the wrong rain gear uh, if your vest costs you $25 or less, you probably got the wrong vests. So wrapping up, checklist, real simple. When you are going through this, ask for the manufacturer's guarantee in writing on letterhead and signed. And make sure it is not attached to a standard. Make sure it is for the life of that garment and not determined on a standard, a.k.a. This garment is flame resistant per ASTM 1506. ASTM 1506 requires 25 launderings. Are you going to have more than 25 launderings or 25 wears in that flame resistant arc rated shirt, pant, etc.? Hopefully. Well, they're telling you and they're guaranteed that it's only up to 25. Whether they're doing that directly or indirectly, it's tied to a standard. We don't want to tie our flame resistant arc rated properties to a standard. Ask for the test data for the hazard, easily done. Should be readily available, and then make sure that any certifications, any claims that you audit. It's as simple as many times as a phone call, going to a website, a couple clicks of a mouse, or dialing someone up and saying, hey, this test data says this is 11 cows of protection. Is that indeed accurate? And it's a simple yes or no. Specify that only certified compliant garments for your hazard are allowed on site. Just because I have one shirt, one pant, one coverall for your hazard doesn't mean my whole catalog is. So make sure you verify that. Work with proven supply chain partners. And this is key and this is important. It doesn't matter as long as you haven't had an incident. When this matters is after you have an incident. I can take 10 suppliers, 10 manufacturers, and I can have people walk around with all the labels and identifiers off of a Navy flame-resistant arc-rated coverall. Walk around the room, and I can't tell you who's who. I can't tell you where they've cut corners. I can't tell you why it should be $120, and they were able to get that down to $70, even though they're using, quote-unquote, the same fabric. Their test results are the same. We make ours similar, but we make ours over here offshore. We do this, we do that, but it's all the same. You're going to find out when they cut corners after the incident. When you have more body burn than you should have, when you have potentially hurt one of your more employees than you should have been, and at the cost in a burn center of $25,000 a day, how many $20 savings on a shirt, pant, or coverall do you need to make to justify one extra day in a burn unit? My point is, is you know who the proven uh, suppliers are. The reason that they do is they do. They check all the boxes. They audit and vet everything, and nothing is getting into their systems that's not ultimately going to say what it can and cannot do. So work with proven supply chain partners, then periodically police your program for compliance. Work with some subject matter experts. Find out what the latest and greatest is, and stay on top of this life-saving piece of equipment. So with that, I'm going to turn it back to Alan. And as he said earlier, if we don't get to all the questions today, the good folks send them all to me, and I will get you an answer. If I can't answer it today, I have a lot of resources back in the home office. Uh, I will get you your answer, and uh, we'll go from there. So with that, Alan, take it away. Well, thank you so much, as always, Derek, especially for this fantastic and insightful presentation. Uh, before we start the q and I want to remind everyone about the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve our future webcast. Okay, now let's get to some questions. Um, the first one, is an arc flash assessment a procedure a regular electrician can handle, or in, in what does that assessment consist of? If, uh, real easy. Uh, as you read 70E, it requires a electrical engineer to be consulted on it. Now, the, an electrician can go around and get all the numbers necessary for your electrical engineer to make the calculations or input the calculations, or you can have a third party come in and do it. So uh, the easy answer is I can 
I don't have to be an electrical engineer to grab the data necessary, but an electrical engineer has to be involved in the process in order to ultimately have that arc flash hazard assessment done. And it typically is a lot more complex than just bringing in a bunch of numbers and running them through some software. You're going to have to supply single line drawings. They're going to first and foremost give you recommendations to take incident energies down and uh, create a safer system. And uh, so it's a little bit more involved. There's a number of folks out there who, who do this, and this is what they do, uh, and consulting them should be relatively easy. But to answer your question, no, you don't have to be an electrical engineer. You can be an electrician to collect the data, but electrical engineers need to be involved in the completion of your arc flash hazard uh, assessment. So our next question, regarding apparel interface, is it okay to have a long sleeve, and kind of sleeves rolled down and buttoned, FR shirt unbuttoned, if an employee is wearing an FR shirt tucked in underneath the unbuttoned long sleeve outer shirt? It is, again, as we, as we went through um, years of now, layering becoming more and more adopted, the elimination of that fuel, a.k.a that natural fiber undergarment, which was allowed, by the way, for by all the standards. Uh, you were allowed to wear natural fibers underneath because the thought process was they will not melt, drip, and add to the injury. Uh, the fear was always, though, break open of that outermost layer and then potential ignition of that fuel source. Uh, so that's why, one, we want to tuck things in because we don't want to have a pathway of that energy going from the ground and coming up from the ground up. And if we were untucked, that garment will blouse uh, and the energy will go underneath and there will be potentially a fuel source there. If you take away the fuel and now you have a flame-resistant arc-rated undergarment tucked in, interfaced properly with that shirt, and my outermost layer is now untucked, uh, I've taken away the fuel. So the answer is yes. Uh, if you want to have that untucked look, and that's acceptable, uh, and you're allowed to work that way by removing the fuel, a.k.a. that 100% uh, cotton T-shirt underneath by using a flame-resistant arc-rated base layer, you technically would not have to tuck that outer layer in. You would be tucking in the base layer, which would take away uh, and by default solve the problem. Our next question, for resetting a breaker in, in this example, 110 voltage, what type of PPE would be acceptable? Whatever your hazard risk assessment dictates. Uh, that that is not that is not any answer that you're going to get from a uh, flame resistant arc rated clothing provider. Uh, that is going to be dictated by what your hazard assessment and ultimately what your uh, has arc flash hazard uh, assessment tells you. That piece of equipment and energy will be based on uh, the calculations necessary. So I can't answer that. So our next question, what provides greater protection, two lightweight layers or a single heavier layer? Uh, real easy. Everything now, I'm going, I have to default and say under bulwark, utilizing bulwark-based layers and bulwark shirts. Uh, we have not yet had a calculation, a layered calculation that is less than any of our single layers. For example, we have taken traditional Cat 1 garments, and by Cat 1, that is less than uh, uh, eight cals of protection. So let's say you have a 6.5 calorie uh, button down, and you have a 6.3 calorie base layer, and when I test those combinations together, I get 24 calories of protection. There is not a... Uh, button-down, knit shirt, there's no single-layer shirt-weight garment that's going to get you anywhere close to 24 calories. 
at the most you're going to be in that 10 to 11 calorie range, even in some of the more robust and heavier quote-unquote shirts. Uh, but 24 cows in two lightweight layers are not going to be uh, superseded by a single layer uh, shirt weight fabric that I'm aware of. Well, thank you, everyone. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but unanswered questions will be forwarded to today's sponsor. Again, we also hope you take the time to share your feedback through our survey. This ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank, thank Derek Sang, our sponsor, Bulwark, and of course, all of us, or all of you who joined us today. Take care and be safe.